The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Out of the 318 delegates, at least 306 of them had suffered for the sake of Christ. Some expect that when you become a Christian, you will no longer suffer. Some even preach that if you are a good Christian, you should not suffer. And if you are suffering, it's because you are not a very good Christian. Of course, those 306 delegates would probably disagree with that statement. As well as would all of the forefathers of our faith and the prophets, as well as our own Savior, Jesus Christ, who was perfect and yet suffered. Suffering is a reality for every human being, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian. And so this morning, I want to start by asking, how do you suffer? In what way do you suffer in your life? Maybe it is a physical suffering. You're simply wearing out. You weren't the person you used to be. Maybe you have a bad back that keeps you from lifting more than 10 pounds. Maybe it is a a social or relational suffering that you have, conflict in the workplace. You don't get along with the people that are there. There's always tension. Or maybe there's conflict in the house constantly. Maybe you are just lonely. Maybe your suffering is an emotional suffering, a, a psychological suffering of sort. Maybe it is depression or guilt or regret or anxiety or grief or stress. How do you suffer? And what do you do with that suffering? Where do you go for relief? Maybe you go to exercise or Netflix or shopping or food or sports or maybe less respectable things like to alcohol or to pornography or towards judgmentalism. The reality is in our suffering, we all go someplace, somewhere. And today in our passage, in Exodus chapter 2, we're going to be reminded the one place that we can go that will satisfy. If you would please turn to Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. If you're in the Red Bible, it is page 46. And if you are in the Children's Bible, it is page 88. In our passage today, we're going to learn and relearn that in our suffering, we should not simply cry out to God as a last resort, but that we should cry out to God as a first resort, that we should go to God in our suffering early and often. Now, I know there are many reasons we don't run to God initially. One reason might be because we don't believe in God. Why would we cry out to someone that we don't believe even exists? Maybe we don't cry out to God in our suffering because we believe that we are not that big of a deal, that our suffering is not that bad. We don't want to be whiners or complainers, and we figure that God has bigger suffering to deal with, and so we just internalize it and try to handle the suffering on our own. Maybe we don't go to God in our suffering because we love our idols too much. We love our substitute saviors that we run to so frequently, and we do not want to run to God. We would so much rather run to them. 
whatever the reason is that you do not initially run to God in your suffering. Today, we want to see why we should cry out to God first and often and continually in the midst of our suffering. And what we're going to see is that we should cry out to God because we have a compassionate God. We have an awesome God and we have a God that delivers us from our suffering. Before we dig into God's word, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come as a broken people. All of us could walk across this stage and share with you our suffering. Lord, I, I know that, that there's probably some here who, who minimize their suffering because they think it's, it's not that big of a deal. But God, pray that they would be able to be honest with themselves and with you about what they're going through. I know there are, are many of us here who, who medicate for our suffering, sometimes through respectable things, sometimes through unrespectable things. And so God, pray that you would remind our hearts and assure our hearts that in the midst of our suffering, to come to you early and often because you are such a good and loving and compassionate and active God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, why should we run to God in our suffering? The first reason is because our God is a compassionate God. In Exodus chapter 1, we read, that the Israelites are in Egypt and they have multiplied greatly in this foreign land. And they've multiplied so greatly that Pharaoh is threatened by their size. He's afraid that they will overthrow Egypt. And so Pharaoh starts to oppress the people of Israel, oppress the Hebrews. He even starts to systematically kill off the baby boys in order to take power over these people. They're under a tremendous amount of suffering. As a, as a result of Pharaoh's edict to kill all the young boys, Moses, baby Moses, before he's named, is put into a basket and sent down the river. And he is picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and adopted into Pharaoh's household where he is raised in all the luxuries of Egypt. But at around 40 years of age, Moses' blinders come off and he sees the injustice towards the Hebrews and he starts to identify himself with his people, the Israelites, and as he does that, he starts to pursue justice for them, even to the point of murdering an Egyptian taskmaster. Because of his killing this man, because of his treason, he flees, and he flees to Midian. And when he is in Midian, we see that he, he marries a woman. He becomes a part of the household of Jethro. But then the story ends in a very dismal way. It ends with the, Egypt, with the Israelites suffering in Egypt. And it ends with Moses lonely and peopleless in Midian. There is suffering all over the place. And that's where we pick up today's story. Exodus chapter 2. We'll start in verse 23. And again, we'll read some and talk some, read some and talk some. Verse 23. During those many days... The king of Egypt died, 
And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Our God is a compassionate God because our God knows our suffering. It says in this passage that Israel cried out for help. And when words failed to communicate the depth of their suffering, they simply groaned to God. And we read that God heard their groaning, that God could translate the depth of the pain and suffering, and that he heard it. He was not inattentive. And not only did God hear their suffering, but it says here that God actually saw the people of Israel. For God to see them doesn't just mean that he visually observes them, but that he looked upon them with grace and love and mercy and favor. You know, a few weeks ago, one of my children... During the service, got sick. You may know who it is. And (laughs) so, so much for anonymity. And uh, so he was out there and he had thrown up, okay, before the fellowship break. And, And because Trish was going to the Packer game after the service and he had to wait for me, he just laid down out there. And after the service, I told people, hey, I got to go. I have a family emergency. And so I grabbed Corbin and the other kids, and we went home. And I took Corbin, and I put him up in my room, put him on the couch, and I put covers on him, and I heated up a rice sock for him, brought out a puke bucket and some water, and I turned on the TV, and I, I even gave him a little bell. And I was like, if you need anything, just ring it, and I'll come and help you. And I don't think that's anything glorious. I think if you're a parent, you'd know exactly what that's like. You would do exactly the same thing. And yet, if that is how us as heavenly fathers and mothers would love and care for our children in the midst of their suffering, how much more would a perfect heavenly father hear and listen and minister to you in your suffering? See, we can go to God in our suffering because our God is a compassionate God who hears our groans, who sees our suffering. But God even goes a step further than you and I could go in our compassion. God knows our suffering intimately. It's interesting here at the end of verse 25. You'll see there's this phrase at the end, and it's interesting because we looked at this in our community group and everybody's translation said something completely different which is very confusing. The NIV translated it as God was concerned. The King James Version translates it, God had respect onto them, something that seems completely different. But the literal translation is God knew. God knew. Now, of course, God intellectually knew what was happening, but when it says God knew, it is referring to the most intimate of relationships that is possible between human beings. For example... In Genesis 4, we read, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Now, it wasn't that just Adam intellectually knew of Eve and she had a baby. He knew her intimately in ways that, 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 that push the extreme of human encounter. Adam knew his wife Eve, so God knows us personally, intimately. And he even knows our suffering experientially. You know, it's interesting in 
Acts chapter 8, Saul is out and he is persecuting the church in Jerusalem. And it says things like Saul is ravaging the church. He's entering houses and dragging off men and women to prison. That, that Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That Saul had approved of the stoning and murder of Stephen. And yet when we get to the next chapter, at the very beginning, Jesus appears to Saul and he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not the church. Why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is such an amazing statement. What it is telling us is that when Christ's church suffers, Christ suffers. When Christ's church is persecuted, Christ is persecuted. That means you, as a child of God, when you suffer, God knows you're suffering so intimately that he identifies himself and he says, I suffer with you. Your suffering is not lost on God. God never turns a deaf ears to your cries. God is always busy, but he is never too busy for you, his child. He sees your affliction. He hears your cries and your groans, and he knows your suffering intimately. And that's why we are to cry to God in the midst of our suffering. He's a compassionate God because he knows our suffering, but he's also a compassionate God and that he takes action. Our God remembers his covenant. In verse 23, it says, during those many days. Now, by many days, it's talking about over 14,000 days. That's a lot of days. Over 40 years of days. You know, the Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years, and there had been at least 40 years of suffering in which they were oppressed and systematically killed. And then we continue to read, and it says, verse 24, God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. When it says that God remembered his covenant, it's not saying that God forgot his covenant. Like he was digging through old books. He's like, oh yeah, I made that promise. Guess I got to keep it because I'm God, right? When it says God remembered his covenant, it means that God is about to take action on his covenant promises. It's almost like a tagline from a movie. God remembered. All right, here we go. God's about to go at it. He's about to fulfill his promise. We see this earlier in the life of Noah when Noah is on the ship and the the world is flooded and he is all alone. It says that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the waters subsided. When it says God remembers, it means he's about to take action on his promises. And so what does it mean here when it says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Well, if we turn back to Genesis chapter 15, it says this. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Talking about Egypt. And will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, here's the promise. An audacious promise. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions as for yourself talking to abraham you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here to canaan in the fourth generation 
God's covenant promise is that he would deliver the people out of Egypt with the riches of Egypt, and he would crush Egypt and bring them back to the promised land. Now, that is an audacious promise. And yet here we see that God is about to put that promise into action. Now, when I used to read Exodus, and part of it might be influenced by Cecil B. DeMille and Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, but when I used to read the Ten Commandments, I used to think, okay, here are the people of God in Israel. They have been faithful to God. They've been loving to God. They've been crying out to God for 40 years or 100 years or 400 years, whatever it might be, they've been crying out to God, and God has just been slow to act. God's perfect in his timing, but he was slow to act. He heard their cries, and he didn't do anything for a long time because he was waiting for the appropriate time. But Ezekiel tells us actually something different. Ezekiel 20, which is after the Exodus, after Moses, says this, and you can read along on the screen behind you. Behind me, excuse me. (laughs) Thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am the Lord, your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them and a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. Verse 7, and I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them, not one, cast away the detestable things from their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But, a great word in the Bible, it always means God's about to do something we don't deserve. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. The people of God were given a promise. I will take you out into the most glorious land of all. Cast away your idols of Egypt and come and worship and serve and follow me. And they said, no. They forsook the living God. They turned from the one true God to idols. And when God called them to repentance, they refused to do so. Their suffering in Egypt was a result of their own stubborn heart and rebellion and idolatry. God was ready to save, but they continued to run away to their substitute saviors, which always left them bankrupt. And because God cares for the Israelites and for his glory, God, for the sake of his name, work in their hearts, groaning and crying and eventually repentance. Now, notice this is so important. God says not because the Israelites were such a good people or because the Israelites were such a faithful people or because the Israelites were such a high draft pick among the peoples of the earth. 
God didn't save them because they were a powerful people or a popular people. God saved them because they were a chosen people. A people chosen by God to be recipients of his unrelented grace and mercy for all eternity. You know, I was listening to a sermon on this passage, as I often do, and the preacher kept saying, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare talk that way to God. Don't you dare say that thing to God. Don't you dare do this. Don't you dare do that. And finally, I turned it off because I realized that everything this preacher was saying, don't you dare do this. I've done all of them. I have run to idols instead of to God in the midst of my suffering. I have done all the things that, that God tells us not to do. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that even when God's covenant people are unfaithful, God is still faithful to his promise. That the good news of the gospel is not that God fulfills his promise when we deserve it, but God fulfills his promise because he promised. The good news is that God's salvation is not contingent on what we have done, but it's contingent on who he is and his promises made to us. And so why should we continue to cry out to God time and time again in the midst of our suffering? Because we have a compassionate God who hears and sees and knows our suffering. A compassionate God who remembers his covenant always. The second reason is because not only is our God a a compassionate God, but he is also an awesome God. He can do something about his compassion. Look with me in 3.1, if you would. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, also called Mount Zion. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. You know, it's kind of random, isn't it? God reveals himself in the form of a burning bush. A a burning bush. Like, why not a wet chicken or something? Why a burning bush? I mean, it just seems so random, doesn't it? But what we see is that God revealing himself through a burning bush is showing us something about the awesomeness of God. The first thing it shows us is that God is awesome because he is self-existent. You know, fire needs fuel to burn. It needs wood or it needs gas or it needs propane or it needs something. It needs something to burn. But this fire needed nothing to burn. It was self-existent. Later, God says that his name is I am, which can also say I be. God simply is. He doesn't need anything for existence. He is self-sufficient. In Genesis 1.1, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God 
God was before anything else was. And so he is not contingent on anything else. In the burning bush, God is saying, I depend on nothing, but everything depends on me. God is self-existent, which means that he is not limited by nature or by humanity or by anything else in carrying out his will. So we see our God is awesome because he is self-existent, but we also see that he is holy. Verse 5, God said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This is actually the first place in scripture that we see this word holy. And it's so interesting because it's used to describe dirt, right? This is holy dirt, holy ground. And what makes that ground holy, of course, is not the minerals in the dirt, but it is the presence of a holy God. And so he tells Moses to take off his shoes and to back up a sign of reverence and servitude. Now, at first, Moses doesn't seem to know who he's dealing with. He's inquisitive, doesn't react too severely. But then we get to verse 6, and it says, God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. When Moses recognized the holiness of God, when he got just a glimpse of the holiness of God, he was so overwhelmed by his own filthiness that he hid his face in shame. This is a common reaction when people get a glimpse of the holiness of God. We see it in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve know the holiness of God because they are perfect and holy and happy, but then they sin against God. They eat the forbidden fruit, and God comes into the garden. What do they do? They hide because they are afraid. Fast forward to the prophet Isaiah. He is having a vision of heaven, and he sees Uh, he sees the throne of God surrounded by seraphim. Each have six wings and each of them with two of their wings are covering their face. Shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the prophet Isaiah, probably the most holy man on the whole face of the earth, the most godly man, the most God loving man on the face of the earth. Says, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The fear that overcame Adam and Eve, the fear that overcame Moses, the fear that overcame the prophet Isaiah was a fear of comparison. See, this happens in our world all the time on a a micro scale. You know, if I'm helping my kids out with school and we're talking about like math, you know, I can help them pretty confidently, add, subtract. I can do that. I'm good at that. But what happens when you get in the room with someone who's a professor of mathematics or someone who's wrote doctorates on mathematics? All of a sudden you become less confident, don't you? (laughs) You don't talk so much. You just... Listen and you smile and nod and say, hmm, how interesting, right? It it happens in a whole scope of ways. Athletically, maybe you're good amongst your friends, but then you get out around a higher caliber of people and you just start fumbling the ball or whatever it might be. Maybe it's in your business field or, or, or whatever it might be, right? When we have a 
different comparison when we have a, a change of who we're comparing ourselves with. We're struck with fear. But this is just a micro scale compared to God. When we compare our holiness to others' holiness, our morality to others' morality, we might say, you know, that's a good person or that's a good lady, that's a good guy or whatever. It might be true compared to other people, but compared to the holiness of God, none of us can stand. As a matter of fact, the holiness of God is lethal to the most holy person in the entire world. It is lethal because they are utterly stained compared to the holiness of God. Our God is a holy God. And yet the good news is that our God, who is a holy God, who, whose holiness is lethal to sinful human beings like us, is not a distant God, but he is a near God. He is an intimate God. I don't know if you noticed this. It's, it's confusing. Maybe you just read over it, but if you saw it, it might have confused you. But in verse 2, we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire. The angel of the Lord. But then we get to verse 4, and it says, God called out to him out of the bush. And so there seems to be this discrepancy. What does it mean that the angel of the Lord called out and then God called out? How could that possibly be? Well, the solution is really found in the word the. It talks about the angel of the Lord, not a angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the angel of the Lord appearing when God wants to appear to his people personally without them dying because of his holiness. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that the only person that fits that category is Jesus, who is God himself and yet condescended to man to appear to man. And yet man was not destroyed. Man was not consumed. In the midst of him appearing. And so here we see the pre-incarnate Christ coming and speaking to Moses through this burning bush. Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord. And he is able to engage with us intimately as sinful human beings. And yet not consume us because of his holiness. And so we see our God is awesome. And that he is self-existent and holy. And that he is also intimate. I'm guessing if you grew up in this region or if you're coming to church today, you know something about God. You probably know he is holy, that he is perfect. You probably know that he is intimate with people. But do you really know God? Have you experienced God? This, is, this, is a, this story is the story of Moses' conversion. Moses probably knew a lot, God, about God, but Moses had never experienced God. He knew about God's holiness and his awesomeness, but he didn't intimately know God himself. Do you know God yourself? Do you know this holy and awesome and wonderful and beautiful God? A God who is compassionate, a God who cares, a God who is dependent on nothing yet is so holy that it would drive us to our knees in repentance and worship. And a God that is so holy that he is beautiful like fire and yet dangerous like fire. So we have a compassionate God. We have an awesome God. Finally, we have a God that delivers his people. Verse 7. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmaster. I know their suffering. This is God's compassion again. It's the first time that Moses is hearing that the Lord God is a compassionate God for these people. Verse 8. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place that Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God says he has come down to deliver his people. Now, deliverance has both an origin and a destination. You're delivered from something and delivered to something. And so what we see in this passage is that the Israelites are delivered from Egypt. They're delivered from their bondage, from their slavery. They're delivered from the consequences of their own sin, the consequences of their own idolatry and rebellion. They're delivered from themselves. And so they're delivered from that, but they're also delivered to something. We see that here that God says that he will deliver them into the land of all these parasites and ites and ites and ites, whatever it might be. But God is delivering them into a land that is abundant and blessing, flowing with milk and honey. And so God is delivering them from one thing, but to another. And yet that is not all. We also see that God is delivering them into a relationship with himself. At the end of verse 12, we read that God's promise will be fulfilled. And the way that Moses will do that is that the people will come out and they will serve God on this mountain. God promises he will bring his people out to hear from God, to worship God, to commune with God, and to enjoy with God. You know, the Israelites' story is not so unlike ours. Their foolishness is not so like ours. You know, because of our idolatry, because of placing things above God in our life, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, we are in bondage to sin. We are in bondage to death. None of us can escape, but none of us can stop sinning. None of us can escape death. It surely will happen. And we brought it upon ourselves by our own rebellion. But the good news is that God is a delivering God. A God who delivers his people out of their own bondage, out of their own slavery, by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins and bring us into a relationship of worship. God doesn't just deliver us out of our sin. He delivers us into a relationship with him and into a promised land for all eternity. If you are here and you are suffering, and in faith you cry out to the Lord God, the one true God, and you cry out to him for deliverance, you will be delivered from your suffering 100% of the time. 100% of the time, you will be delivered from your suffering. Now, you may say, wait, that hasn't been my experience. But God tells us that we will be delivered from our suffering 100% of the time if we cry out to him in faith. And it may not be in our timing, and it probably won't be in our timing. But 100% of the time, either in this world or in the world to come, you will be delivered from suffering. In Revelations 21, the second to last chapter of the Bible, we read about this new heavens and this new earth that come from God. And it says this. 
It says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, talking about the church, and death shall be no more. We will be delivered from the potential to die. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. We'll be delivered from suffering totally and completely. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In your suffering, pray to the great deliverer, Jesus Christ. Cry out to the one who is making all things new. Cast aside your idols. Cast aside your substitute saviors that fail you time and time again. And cry out early and often in the midst of your suffering to God. Because he is a compassionate God, an awesome God, and a God that delivers his people from their suffering. Let me end with this. And it's sort of a tangent, but it's, it's so cool I couldn't not say it. <laughs> Verse 7 again, uh, the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmaster. I know their suffering. And he says, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey and so on and so on and so forth. So at this point in time, Moses hears from God. That God is a compassionate God and he is going to deliver his people out of bondage and slavery. And Moses in his head is probably thinking, yes, this is awesome. God is going to deliver his people and he's going to bring them to the land of Canaan. That is so amazing and so awesome. Maybe me and my family could go visit them in the land of Canaan. Maybe when they get there, we'll go and and see how they're doing. Maybe we'll even go live with them in that land. But then verse 10 happens. And God says this, come, I will send you you. (laughs) I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You know, this is a Far different Moses than the one that we looked at last week. The Moses last week tried to take things into his own hands. He he was overly confident in his abilities to deliver the people of God. But now he's here going, who am I? He's been humbled by his exile. He's a shepherd, which was detestable to Egyptians. And he's humbled. He says, who am I? This is a great question. But God gives an even better answer. You know, God doesn't come to him and and build Moses up and say, Moses, you are the perfect candidate. Moses, you were born a Hebrew, but you were raised by the Egyptians. You have the education of Egypt, the leadership principles of Egypt. You've been taught by Jethro. You learn how to shepherd sheep and raise a family. And you, you love mercy and justice and reconciliation. You are the perfect guy for the job, Moses. That's not how God answers him. Look how God answers him. Verse 12, Moses says, who am I? And God responds, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God seems to not be answering Moses's question, but God is answering Moses's question. 
God is telling Moses that the deliverance of the people of God from Egypt, the deliverance of the people of God to the land of Canaan is not contingent on him, but it's contingent on God. He is telling Moses, it does not matter who you are. It matters who I am and that I will be with you. Now, when Moses asked, who am I? We see that this is Moses's great commission to go and to bring the people out of slavery into the glorious promised land. We, like Moses, have received a great commission, a greater commission than Moses, a greater privilege than Moses to be God's instruments to bring people not out of physical slavery, but out of spiritual and eternal slavery into the promised land of God's kingdom for all eternity. Now you may say, who am I? I'm too messed up. My history is too bad. I'm, I'm so ungifted. Moses was a stuttering murderer. He was a stuttering murderer. If you have never murdered anybody, I won't ask for a show of hands. If you've never murdered anybody, you're doing better than Moses. And if you have murdered somebody, you're in good company with Moses. And so you see, there is nobody that God cannot use as an instrument of redemption. As we read on, we find out that Moses' question is not one of humility, but one of unbelief. He's not saying, I am unable, but God is able, I will go. He's saying, I'm unable, God is able. God, you go do something about it. Pick somebody else. See, it matters not who you are or what you have done. What matters is who God is and that he is with you. Hudson Taylor spent 51 years as a missionary in China. He founded China Inland Mission, which brought over 800 missionaries to China. It started over 125 schools, which is mind-boggling to me, and led more than 18,000 people to Christ. Ralph D. Winter said, More than any other human being, James Hudson Taylor made the greatest contribution to the cause of world mission in the 19th century. Well, one time, Hudson Taylor was being introduced at a large church in Melbourne, Australia, and the moderator who was introducing him laid out the accolades of Hudson Taylor, all the things that I just shared with you and more. And then as he called them up, he called them up as our illustrious guest, Hudson Taylor. And as Hudson Taylor came forth, he stood quietly for a moment and he opened his sermon by saying, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said, the great evangelist? 1 Corinthians 59, I am the least of the apostles. Ephesians 3, 8, I am the very least of all the saints. 1 Timothy 1, 15, I am the foremost of sinners. If you are weak, then you are strong. If you know that you can do nothing without God, then you are in a perfect place to be used by God. God calls you to go, but he does not call you to go alone. You go with a God that is compassionate and awesome, a God who delivers and is victorious. We are called to go, but we do not go alone. Jesus in the Great Commission says to his church, to the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Just as he said to Moses, he says, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Christian, you are called 
to be an instrument of deliverance in the midst of suffering in this world. But take heart, you do not go alone. You go with a God that is compassionate and awesome and victorious. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would, that you would use us as a ministry, as an instrument of deliverance in this suffering world, God. However it might be, Lord. And God, we pray that you would help us to run to you early and often, Lord, in the midst of our suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.